Well, let's take our Bibles and turn them to the book of Ephesians. A couple of Sunday evenings back, I went back through the basics of Christian marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. Now we're going to look at the basics regarding the Christian home and perhaps the workplace, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, this evening. I'm not attempting to tell you things you don't know by looking at these passages. I want to underscore the things that you do know and that need to be remembered. So we come to chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, but let's first bow before the Lord. <clears throat> oh, our God... How, how treacherous is the evil one, how deceptive, how he would like to keep fathers from exercising biblical authority in the rearing of their children, how he would like to distract mothers from their calling, their high, high calling, how the evil one would like for us Christians in particular to live like those who know not Christ in the workplace. And yet, Heavenly Father, we have these clear instructions in your word to us who believe in Jesus. And we pray that thou wilt apply them even now to our hearts and lives and consciences. Everything we study in your word we know, Heavenly Father, is traceable to Christ, his gospel, his cross, his resurrection from the dead. We pray that those who may be among us tonight who will hear about fathers and who will hear about children will also hear that there is a heavenly father, a heavenly father who sent his son, a son who gave his life that we may be redeemed from our selfishness and sin. And there is the blessed work of the Holy Spirit to call and to draw and to keep for time and for eternity. May your spirit work in ways that we do not plan and could never anticipate. For we ask it expectantly in the name of Christ, the head and king of his church. Amen. Ephesians 6, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. The word of the Lord. Sin has estranged us from a relationship with God. We know that. We know that that is the great theme of the Bible. We need to be redeemed from that estrangement. Jesus Christ came as the great reconciler who has brought God to man and man to God through his work on the cross. Christ restores that severed relationship. But sin also defaces man's relationship with his fellow man. So that in marriage, in the home, in the workplace, 
In every relationship we find that there is pride, anger, arrogance, miscommunication, and treachery of all sorts. But if the gospel has transformed my heart, then the gospel also transforms not only my relationship with God, but transforms my relationships with others, including the home and the workplace. I think that the text that actually controls everything that has been said about marriage and everything that is said here about children, parents, slaves, and masters is verse 18 of the fifth chapter in which the Apostle Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And as he goes on, he's teaching us how to live a Spirit-filled life. Not to have some ethereal idea of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, but if you're really filled with the Spirit of God, it's going to show in your home. It's going to show in your marriage. It's going to show in the way in which you work for your employer and the way in which an employer treats his employees if he indeed is a Christian. And so he addresses husbands, wives, children, parents, fathers and their children, slaves and their masters and slaves, All of the authority structures that we have in culture and in society are addressed by the Lord. We live in a day of unbelief when people all around us do not know what to believe. When people are terribly confused, our culture is thoroughly confused about all of the biblical authority structures. They don't understand who a man is to be. They don't understand who a woman is to be. They don't understand what marriage is all about. They don't understand the job in the workplace All of that, all of that needs to be addressed biblically. And when we set aside the Bible, we can expect the chaos that we find in our culture. But we Christians need to live differently than the world around us. Now, the first thing we see as we come to this chapter 6 is that children, most of our little children are out, but we still have some young people here. Children, you are called to obey your parents in the Lord. Now, let me hop ahead to fathers and say that since some of your children are in choir, you go home and teach them these things tonight. Here's what the pastor expounded from the text. Here's what he said, and this is what you need to learn. So children, you are called to obey your parents in the Lord. Now, children, or at least young people who are here, I want you to think with me. All human authority is derived authority. Did you notice how at the end of this passage, uh, when he's addressing slaves and masters, uh, he says he is both their master and yours in heaven. He is underscoring the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting upon a throne, that he's in heaven, that he rules, that he reigns, that the authority structures in this world are derived from his ultimate authority. So all human authority is derived, all human authority is delegated authority. No one has the right to have authority over another human being unless that authority is given to us by the one who has authority over All all true authority points to Christ and is to be exercised in a way that reflects Christ, his gospel, and that demonstrates that we understand that we have derived that authority from him. That's why I had no hesitancy whatsoever in saying to you God's word when I spoke to husbands and said that you are to exercise authority over your wives. But that authority that is exercised is after the pattern of Christ's own sacrificial love for his church because it is a derived authority. Now, since that is so, rebellion against your parents, if you are a young person, is rebellion against Christ. You know we are, because of our sin, rebels against God. 
all the way back here in the second chapter, as he dwells upon who we were before coming to Christ, he says in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is who we are. That is what we are like deep down, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ transforming us, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And so the evil one is at work in those who are disobedient. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, Paul says in Colossians 1.21. Now think about this. It is for our disobedience, young people, it is for our disobedience that Christ gave himself on the cross. Our rebellion against Almighty God was paid for. Our rebellion against the authority of our father, the authority of our mother, shows how sinful we are and shows that we need a Savior. I don't think my son will mind my telling you this. If so, he's in England, and it'll be a little while before he listens to the sermon online, and I'll hear from it in a, in a while, but um, <clears throat> he was very, very small. And uh, there was one day in which he rebelled against his mother, and it happened to be a day when I was around. And so um, I took up the discipline as I should, and I spanked my son, and I spanked my son, and I spanked my son, and I spanked my son. I'm telling you, we were getting a little bit concerned that they might call the social services, you know, because of all the spanking, and our culture doesn't understand it. But I knew that that was a make-or-break day, that if I let that go, he would continue that rebellion against his mother as long as he was in the home. And so I said to my son, because I love you, because I love the Lord, I'm going to discipline you. And I disciplined and disciplined and disciplined and disciplined. It took all day. I'm sure some parents can identify with that. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And then as we came to the end of it all, and sometimes I would have to say to my son when I would discipline him, now, son, you go to your room before one of us sins. <laughs> and then I'd deal with it later when I could be sure that I could approach it properly and rightly. So I sat down with my boy and I said, son, you know, this is rebellion against the Lord. I want to obey, he cried. I want to obey. I just can't. I said, you know, that is exactly right. That is exactly the problem. And let me tell you why you can't. It's because you're a sinner in need of grace. And we went out on the front step, and that's when my son prayed to receive the Lord Jesus Christ because he saw himself to be a sinner. Now, I don't know how much of that he remembers. And I know that the Holy Spirit is operative in his life and working in his life. I've been talking with him lately. Oh, how he's growing in grace. How thankful I am for his growth in grace. But you see, the point is, Children, your rebellion against your father and your mother shows that you need a redeemer. It shows that you need a savior. And so, children, you do not wish to lift yourself above God and disobey him, do you? Not if you're a child of God also. Why did Christ die? He died to redeem you from your awful, awful sin. And that is awful sin. Because rebelling against your father, rebelling against your mother, is rebelling ultimately against the authority of Jesus Christ. Your father's authority and mother's is delegated authority. And so your motive for obeying your parents must rise above self and against your own self-interest. 
And it must even rise above natural affection, not only because you love your mom and your dad, but because you're concerned with the God who saves you and redeems you, and you're concerned with your heart. And that's why the apostle says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He's speaking of union with Christ, and he's talking about these children in union with the Lord. Your motive must be to obey your parents because Christ loves you, has redeemed you, and because you wish to love him in return. So what does your attitude show about your relationship to Christ? By the way, this applies to all authority structures. It applies to adults as well. What does it show about my attitude to Christ in my relationship to the authorities that God has put in my life? Because there are always authorities that God puts in our lives. But notice also that the apostle says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And I think that's important for us to notice as well, that God alone is righteous, and therefore he determines the standard of right and wrong and good and evil, and he determines what is right. And so children, young people, do what is right regardless of the consequences. You know, I know some children, some, some, some parents of children who don't think that it's ever correct to say that. We want to win them by love, we want to win them by grace, and so you don't underscore this element of righteousness. But righteousness is not contrary to God's love. Righteousness is not contrary to God's grace. We should say to our children, why do I do this? Why do you want me to do this? Because it is right. Because it is right. And you know some of the old preachers that used to say, do right though the stars fall out of their silver sockets? Well, that's absolutely biblical and absolutely correct. God sets the standard for what is right. And though this is enough, God in his fatherly kindness adds a promise when in verse 2 he says, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, of course, this fifth commandment in the Old Testament brings the promise that is related to the land of Canaan Uh, But you too are bound to the law of God as a Christian. Now let me explain this carefully. How often have you heard me say that the law of God has nothing to do with your justification? That is to say, the law condemns it cannot save. The law condemns it cannot justify. The law condemns it cannot redeem. And that is absolutely the case. But once you are redeemed, once you are saved, the law of God is extremely important in the Christian life. The old Puritan Samuel Bolton put it this way, The law sends us to the gospel for our justification. The gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. Now listen to that because it's important. The law sends us to the gospel for our justification. All right, the law can't justify. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ can declare us acceptable on the basis of his righteousness. The law sends us to the gospel for our justification. The gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. So we go to the law, and there we find the norm to which we are to find our lives framed. So the fifth commandment, the fifth commandment, pointed out by the Apostle Paul, is applicable to you and to your children today. And ordinarily, obedience brings prosperity, not always material. Remember, Canaan is a type of heaven. 
and so it points beyond this present world to the world to come. So children, young people who are here, let me ask you the question, do you know Christ? What does all of this show your heart? Does it show, yes, I have a heart that even though I'm aware of my sin and rebellion, yet I want to be obedient because I know Christ redeemed me? Or are you kicking and screaming within your soul saying, I do not want to submit because I care nothing for the ultimate authority who is Christ himself? May God redeem you from your sins. If that is the case, come to Christ, my young friend. If that is the case, trust in Christ alone for your redemption. You know, I was reading again, as I mentioned this morning, uh, Jonathan Edwards' wonderful um, narrative of surprising conversions last evening. That's the one that made me so excited I couldn't sleep. It was great to read again how God worked in Northampton when he sent that first revival into the ministry of Jonathan Edwards. But not only did he work with the young people, as I mentioned this morning, he worked with the tiny children. There was one in particular that was four years old that was regenerated. You know, Edwards was very careful about those sorts of things. But that person followed Christ into old age all the days of her life. And the Lord can work in our tiny children as we apply the gospel. So they need to hear the law, parents, and they need to hear the gospel, parents. They need to hear the law, the law, the law shows that you are condemned and you need a savior. The gospel shows you the only way you can be relieved, and the only way you can be redeemed and saved. And our children need to hear that and be taught that. Now, the second thing we see is that fathers, you are called to educate your children. Now, of course, this applies to all parents, to mothers as well. But there's a peculiar emphasis on fathers. As we read verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so, fathers, you are to educate your children. Paul is talking about the wisdom that pervades the total education of your children. You might not know a great deal about geometry, but you are to teach your children the ways of the Lord so that they themselves learn geometry and how to do it in a way that reflects the glory of God. And so you bear, fathers, you bear the responsibility here. That responsibility in our culture is being abdicated, unhappily because of the influences of certain women's movements and so forth, men have become less than men. But it is your responsibility to provide this for your children. And the underlying assumptions that we find here relate to the covenant of grace that we find all through the scripture. Paul addresses in chapter 1 when he begins by saying um, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful who are in Christ Jesus, when he comes to chapter 6, he continues to address fathers and mothers and children as those who are in the church, those who are a part of the visible people of God. And so Paul addresses in chapter 1 the saints, and he continues to address the saints here in chapter 6, children as members of the church. Now, of course, you know that's a Reformed and Presbyterian commitment, that our children are a part of the visible aspect of the church, that they are given wonderful privileges to grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and wonderful privileges to grow up under the, the tutelage of the Word of God in this setting of the church and in the home. So God works through generations, and He works through generations and through you 
and through your children so that he may continue to pass on these great promises that he has made to his people. That is why he addresses them as children of promise here in chapter 6. It is covenantal language. And of course we call our children to Christ. Of course we call our children to conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. But they are nonetheless in a privileged place. You know, going back to the Old Testament and reading just two or three verses together, back in Genesis 18, when the Lord had called Abraham, you remember what the Lord said about Abraham and his covenantal duties. Turn there, Genesis 18, and we're going to look at just two or three verses in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, God says of Abraham, having given to him the promise of the gospel that would spread through him and his seed. He says in Genesis 18, verse 19, For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now that hasn't changed. That's still the case. We go to Psalm 78. And we find the obligation that fathers and parents have of passing on the truth to their children. And just reading these first four verses of Psalm 78, we read, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Still the obligation of fathers to teach their children and tell the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Or in that familiar passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, turning there. Even though it is relating to their particular cultural setting, the principle has never been changed. When we read in Deuteronomy 6, now this is the command is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now listen to this. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." You, Father, 
have the covenantal calling, privilege, and responsibility of teaching your children from the time you rise with them in the morning until the time you go to bed at night, taking every opportunity to speak the word of the gospel, the word of God to your children. That is covenantal rearing of your children. Fathers are called to provide total covenantal environment for their children, to bring the heart of the child to the heart of the Savior. Well, how? Well, it's interesting back here in Ephesians 6 that the apostle uses three words that are, frankly, difficult to translate. He says in verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the passage, the portion of the verse we're looking at is bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The first part is bring them up. Ektrephata. It really means to nourish. You tend to think, well, the mothers are the nourishers. No, no. That's not alone their responsibility. Fathers, you are to nourish, nurture your children. This is the word that is used back there in chapter 5, verse 29, when the apostle speaking of marriage says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And so just as we have the responsibility in our marriages to see this work, to see this principle applied, so also, fathers, the verb he uses here means that you are the one who is called and obligated to nourish your children in the things of the Lord. And then he uses two nouns. You see in verse 4 of chapter 6, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word that is translated discipline here is paideia. Paideia means to instruct. It means to train. It means to discipline, but it does not mean discipline alone. It means all of those things. It includes discipline. Children, of course, are little sinners who need limits, who need to to be guided and directed. And you then are to apply this term paideia, to their total covenantal education and nurture. And then the Apostle Paul uses a third word, bring them up in the discipline, that's paideia, and instruction of the Lord. And the noun that is used here is nuthesia. You've heard of nuthetic counseling. That's the word that is used in nuthetic counseling. It means to admonish. It means to warn. And so as you rear your children, you are to confront them. You are to admonish them. You are to warn them. To put it another way, it is your responsibility to help your child learn what it means to fear God. And they will not see it if you do not fear God. The old Puritan Matthew Henry summarizes this so well. And you fathers or you parents, do not provoke your children to wrath. Though God has given you power, you must not abuse that power, remembering that your children are, in a particular manner, pieces of yourselves, and therefore ought to be governed with great tenderness and love. Be not impatient with them. Use no unreasonable severities, and lay no rigid injunctions upon them. When you caution them, when you counsel them, when you reprove them, Do it in such a manner as not to provoke them to wrath. In all such cases, deal prudently and wisely with them, endeavoring to convince their judgments and to work upon their reason. 
Bring them up well in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, in the discipline of proper and compassionate correction, and in the knowledge of that duty which God requires of them and by which they may become better acquainted with him. Give them a good education. It is the great duty of parents to be careful in the education of their children, not only bring them up as the brutes do, taking care to provide for them, but bring them up in nurture and admonition in such a manner as is suitable to their reasonable natures. Nay, not only bring them up as men in nurture and admonition, but as Christians in the admonition of the Lord. Let them have a religious education, instruct them to fear sinning, and inform them and excite them to the whole of their duty towards God. Isn't that great? Isn't that our calling? Fathers. And it doesn't stop when your children are out of the home. We continue to be fathers in the church. Now what does this mean for fathers? I think it means several things. First of all, it means that you must be every inch the Lord's. Eli was not every inch the Lord's, and we saw the result in his family. There were times where David, though a man after God's own heart, was not every inch the Lord's, and he cried, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, my son, would God I had died for you, Absalom, my son. It means you must be every inch the Lord's. Do you hear me? Do you hear God? You must be every inch the Lord's. If you are a father here trying to rear your children and you think you're doing a Christian job, but you're holding back and you're not every inch the Lord's, you need to believe and repent. Change. You need to be transformed. You need to go and get on your knees tonight and say, Lord, I haven't been every inch yours, and so I'm not going to rear my children properly. I give you my heart. I give you my life. You must be firm but gentle. How do you learn that? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. How do you learn to be firm but gentle? I'll tell you how. By communion with God, who is your father, who's firm with you, who disciplines you, but at the same time, who is gentle with you, compassionate. No harshness hast thou and no bitterness. We sing in that great hymn probably written by John Calvin. And so you learn to reflect the fatherly character of God in the lives of your children because God's fatherly character shines into your heart. It means also, Father, that we must be dependent on the Lord. I mean, this is the greatest responsibility that can be given to a human being. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him and His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep His covenant and remember to obey His precepts. For that, we must be dependent on the everlasting covenant and love of God. And, Father, it also means that you're called to be persistent in your calling, persistent in your duties, and persistent in prayer. And one thing that your children should see, I'm talking to dads right now, it's true of moms too, but I'm really underscoring this for fathers, your children should see you on your knees. They should see that you are a man of prayer. They should see that you are pleading for them, for their salvation, and their knowing Christ, and their growing up to godliness. And if they grow up and they're still not godly, because you can't change the heart, you can't regenerate the soul, you know, it's possible for a father, for a mother, 
to actually be very faithful and consistent and the child not know Christ and perhaps come to Christ later, they need to know you are continuing to pray, to pray, to pray, to pray. Your calling is to pray. You cannot save your child. You can bring your child up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Remember, there is a, there is a sin grace antithesis. There is not a nature grace antithesis. What I mean by that is that God makes it plain that he has ordained to use the family for bringing children to himself. We find it with Noah. We find it with Abraham. We find it all the way into the New Testament when Peter on the day of Pentecost says that the promise is to you and to your children after you, even to as many as the Lord our God shall call. There is a sin grace antithesis, not a nature grace antithesis. He uses the natural relationships that we have in order to bring our children to faith in Jesus Christ. I hope you believe that. Now turn to Malachi, the second chapter is again backdrop to this passage. And remember that in Malachi, in the second chapter, uh, the Lord is speaking. He's bringing a covenant lawsuit against those who have, have been unfaithful to the wives of their youth. And in Malachi chapter 2, in verse 15, he tells us why he's so concerned about this, or at least one reason. Let's start with 14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and the wife and wife, your wife by covenant. Did he not make, with, make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. The calling of the husband is to be faithful to the wife for many reasons. It's reflective of God's covenant with his own people. But another reason is because God wants to use the natural relationship of the home to bring children to himself. In other words, God has ordained marriage in order that he might raise up a godly seed. Now, R.L. Dabney preached a lengthy sermon. I think I'll read it to you. No, not really. Just, but he preached a lengthy sermon, not dealing with some of the things we're dealing with tonight, but in some ways, yes, on parental responsibilities. And uh, Dabney says, Pastoral experience teaches us that as parents perform or neglect their duties, the children usually end in grace or impiety. Now, the operative word is usual. There are, there are parents who are altogether faithful in the rearing of their children, and their children still do not know Christ and may never. The covenant promise to his people is not that every child born in a Christian home will become a Christian, but that God will work through the family line and will use the natural relationships to bring children to himself. Dabney says, just a pastoral observation, pastoral experience teaches us that, as parents perform or neglect duties, the children usually end in grace or impiety. And I think that's usually the case. 
because God uses natural relationships in order that he might grant supernatural grace and salvation. And Dabney went on to tell a story of a young pastor who was in a church, and there was a a man who was notorious in the community for uh, just loving um, fun. Uh, he He raced horses, and he had a lot of money, and he was involved in all kinds of things in the community, but he had no interest in Christ and no interest in the gospel whatsoever. And things changed. He came to church. He was converted. And the minister was hopeful that the Lord had used his pulpit ministrations to bring him to himself. The young man, or the old man, I should say, came before the session. The young man, the pastor, asked him the question, which of the sermons that were preached did God use to bring you to himself? I mean, God has ordained the preaching of the word for that purpose. He said, sermons? It really wasn't sermons. It was my mother. Your mother? His mother had died when the boy was six years old. His mother had died 40 years before. The oldest elder there did not even remember his mother. But you see, when the boy was six years old, the mother, and fathers, you apply this, the mother taught the child the gospel. Taught the child the gospel. Catechized the child, taught him the truth. And that child grew up didn't care about Christ, didn't care about the gospel, rebelled against God. But 40 years later, he said, every time I raced a horse, I thought of my mother. Every time I used all of this money for myself, I thought of what my mother taught me. Every time I just lost myself in enjoyable things, self-indulgent enjoyment, I thought of what my mother taught me. And it was my mother who died when I was six years old. Her teaching, that's why I'm here before the session today, confessing my faith in Christ. So don't give up. And it may be that some of you parents have done a very good job rearing your children, and your children do not yet know or trust in Christ. You just continue, continue, continue. It's in God's hands. Now let me say one more thing. I really mean that. One more. And we'll leave the workplace for another time. Fathers, I think there's an implication from this that is extraordinarily important that really needs to be underscored. And you elders, take this to your shepherding groups. You've done it before. Do it again. And that is the place of family worship. I fail to understand why a father would not want and desire from his heart to lead his family to the throne of grace every day if that father is a redeemed sinner saved by the blood of the Lamb. And so take your little children or your older children, gather your wife and your children together every day with rare exceptions because of providential hindrance. And pray with them and sing a hymn and read the Bible. Or read Catherine Voss's great little storybook if they're tiny. Get the puppet out. Puppets can ask catechism questions when you can't. It really works, believe me. 
family worship. Take what used to be called the family altar, all right? Take your children to the throne of grace. Don't make it long. Don't provoke them to anger. The point is not to have a long family worship. The point is to be consistent so that the child expects it every day. Again, if in God's providence you have to be away, the mother takes the lead. But every day the child expects, Dad is going to pray with me. Dad is going to sing. He may not sing well, but boy, he's going to try. He's going to sing a hymn with me. He's going to read the Bible with me. He's going to point me to Jesus. And he's going to do it every day. And if you don't know how, I would be delighted to sit down with you and talk with you about how to do it. And there are many men here who have done that well. Uh, some men who no longer have children in their homes. Dan DeLang over here, Steve Sly, many men that I could point to in this, in this place. Uh, Ronnie Boutwell, others. Uh, Alan Montgomery, <clears throat> who, who has the privilege of, of serving uh, his, uh, his son-in-law and grandchildren often in this way when his son-in-law is away at work. You can talk with them about how to have family worship. It's not a difficult thing to do, but just have a heart for it because you have a heart for Christ and you want your children to hear the gospel. Lead them in worship and live consistently before them. May the Lord bless his word. Amen.